Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Levy campus, and I'm Tom, and uh, I have the joy of serving on our teaching team. So welcome on this great day. Uh, I am a pastor, and being a pastor is, well, it's a wonderful uh, vocational calling. But I must say to you this morning that it can also be a very challenging one. Uh, when people find out that you're a pastor, they often kind of go weird on you. This past week, I was painfully reminded of that. Picture yourself, first of all, if you don't know, I'm an introvert. And picture yourself at Sky Harbor Airport, rental car bus, a crowded rental car bus, going to get your rental car. And uh, we're standing up, standing room only. I'm holding on to the bar, you've ever done that sort of thing, and the gentleman right next to me in my armpit Never had met a stranger in his life, I assure you. In a crowded bus, this guy starts talking to me loud. Why me? It happens way too much. Well, let me get there. And he starts talking in a very loud and dogmatic and opinionated way. And then he asks me the dreaded question. The one pastors hate being asked, what is it? What do you do? This is the greatest test of my integrity. And uh, think of the crowded bus. I tried to say without lying, lowly, I'm a pastor. And then he just got all excited. He blurped out right away his religion and what a good moral person he was. And as he kept talking, the bus got more awkwardly quiet. <laughs> I have never prayed more nor thankful to God more than when we had a quick arrival at the rental car center. <laughs> Thank God for that. When people find out I'm a pastor, I continue to be amazed, not just by what they say to me, but by the questions they ask me. The questions usually in our day center around very polarizing cultural issues. I don't know why they don't just talk about sports or the Chiefs. Go Chiefs, by the way. Why don't they just talk about sports with me? No, they ask questions like this. Strangers. Pastor, are you a Republican or a Democrat? This one occurs increasing frequency. Pastor, do you hate gays? Or if they're theologically interested, Pastor, you don't really believe in hell, do you? So what I've come to understand that is in many cases, my questioners are not sincerely seeking a thoughtful response to consider. As much as they are offering a litmus test for me to pass or fail. A question like, you don't really believe in hell, do you? Is often not seeking the truth about what the Bible teaches as much as it is a means to dismiss their fear of divine accountability and a need for a savior. A question like, do you hate gay people? Is often not seeking to understand the biological, sociological complexity and theological framework of sexual ethics, but rather 
the determining factor whether I will be embraced as a loving person or immediately dismissed as a hateful bigot. Question like, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Is often not seeking to understand the complex relationship between religion and government. It is rather to politicize a pastor's vocational calling. It pushed me into a stereotypical corner that I don't know or don't care. Questions we ask all matter, don't they? I remember I had a teacher in high school who, I guess because he was into monologues, wanted to evoke questions. And he would always say, there are no dumb questions. Now, we may question that. But he would say, there are just unasked ones. Now, I'm not sure he was right about this assertion, there are no dumb questions. <laughs> but clearly, there can be disingenuous ones. Do you agree? See, the questions we ask reveal the hearts we possess. So what questions are you asking these days? And what are your questions telling you about you? If you brought a Bible, turn with me to the gospel writer Matthew, his first book in the New Testament. Matthew's gospel, chapter 22. In our text this morning, it is a brilliant text. It has humor. Uh, Jesus is asked by religious leaders two big questions. They are not dumb questions. This is an intellectual conversation with the intellectual elite of the day. But we will see they are disingenuous ones. Now, up to this point in Matthew's gospel, if you've read it or you've been with us in the series, the writer Matthew highlights Jesus' amazing supernatural power. It's been repeatedly showcased in all dimensions of reality. But now, Jesus' stunning humility and dazzling intellectual brilliance is on full display for us to see. Beginning in chapter 21, the narrative shifts. The gospel writer Matthew zooms his literary lens in on the very last week of Jesus' life. As Jesus enters Jerusalem on his final mission to the cross, you'll notice as you read it and feel it, the pace, the intensity, the tension builds. And there is a growing sense of inevitability that fills the electrified air. There is a final collision with the religious aristocracy, and it is fast approaching. We feel it in every paragraph. We see it in every hairpin turn of the narrative. Last week, Pastor Andrew explored with us how Jesus utilized parables to unveil the religious leader's hypocrisy. While the religious leaders may be blind to their own hypocrisy, they are not deaf to what Jesus is saying to them. They are getting a razor-sharp point that Jesus is making, and they do not like it one bit. So, they set out. And notice in the text, to discredit Jesus, not only as a fraudulent rabbi, but here particularly as an intellectually deficient one. The religious aristocracy will set three traps in chapter 22. We're going to look at two of them this morning. In verses 15 through 22, we see the first trap. They set the God and government trap. 
And then in verse 23 through 33, they set the love and marriage trap. So the narrative flows around three traps. We're going to look at two. First, the God and government trap. Look with me at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, or Jesus, in his talk. In Jesus' time, the Pharisees were very scrupulous religious leaders, quite a bunch, who prided themselves in the strictest adherence to the Old Testament laws. Here Matthew allows us, the reader, the listener, to peer beneath the respectable, polished religious veneer and expose their dark and turbulent and ugly inner world. One of the distinguishing marks of Matthew, if you have read it or will read it or read this gospel, you will notice how Matthew intentionally, specifically, explicitly, repeatedly reminds us that the most messed up people Jesus encounters are not often the irreligious, they are the religious. And that should sober all of us. After hearing Jesus, the religious leaders have all they can take. So they huddle in their little holy space and they concoct a plan to trip up and trap Jesus. Now Matthew wants us to know their motive and he uses a very vivid word from the ancient Greek text. It is a word that is most used in a literal way or a concrete way of an animal being trapped by bait in a real trap. So he uses this particular word for a great sense of vividness. I don't know much about trapping critters, maybe you do, but I know people can be trapped too. Traps not made of twisted steel, but of twisted words. And Matthew describes in verses 16 through 17 how these religious leaders present the trap and bait it. Notice, first, they conceal their identity by hiding behind their disciples. You see that? Here's where the gospel writer Luke who gives us the same account, gives us greater texture here. In Luke chapter 20, Luke writes, so they watched him, that's Jesus, and sent spies. Notice, Luke says, who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said. Now secondly, notice how they present the trap. Do you see it? They layer it on with glittering flattery. Don't you just love it? You hear it? You feel it? What a good teacher you are, Jesus. You always speak truth. Do you feel it? Do you see it? What an enticing bait. Third, under this glistening flattery, they raise a question that is designed to logically put Jesus on the horns of an either-or dilemma. You see the logic? Look at me at verse 17. They say to Jesus, tell us then. I think they kind of smirked. It's my intention there. What, what do you think? Is it lawful or right to pay taxes to Caesar, that is Rome, or not? Ah, taxes. That woke everybody up. Some things never change. Right? On April 15th or before, we all complain, we see our paycheck, we all groan under the demands of Uncle Sam, don't we? But for many religious Jews in the first century, it wasn't just groaning, it wasn't just a mere annoyance. These words were fighting words. Socially, culturally, it's time to put your dukes up. Many religious Jews saw paying any taxes to heathen Rome as treasonous to God, and this particular word 
that Matthew uses of the tax is a specific tax, the poll tax. It wasn't so much about gaining revenue for Rome. It was rather a constant reminder of the occupied people who are being oppressed, the Jewish people by the club of Rome, that they were under the oppression of a superior people. It was a regular push down in the muck and mire of humiliation. So they present this in the most emotionally inflammatory way. Enslavement to their occupiers. This question asked of Jesus is multifaceted. It's a full punch head on. Notice in the text how the question is framed in such a way that there is an expected no-win situation for Jesus. Notice how the answer they are expecting is either a yes or a no. They are trying to logically put Jesus in a corner and trap him, an either-or logical corner. Uh, this context is sort of like, remember, I remember as a kid, one of my favorite friends used to always do this. It was one of his favorite things. He would raise this hypothetical question. Remember this? Can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? Right? This, this is on the face of it. This is a no-win answer. Right? If you say God can't create a certain size of rock, you're minimizing his omnipotence to create. And if you say, well, he can't lift a certain size rock, then you're also minimizing God's importance. You see the no-win? This is exactly what's going on here. If Jesus says yes to paying this tax, the Herodian leaders would agree, but the Pharisees would come unglued. If Jesus said no to paying the poll tax, he would be making the Pharisees a happy campers, but he would alienate the Herodian religious leaders and certainly raise the ire of Rome. In other words, no matter what side Jesus takes, the other side will come unglued. That's where they want him. See, more than anything... Matthew wants us to see here that the religious leaders carefully plan question that is emotionally cranked reveal their deep, hardened hearts. Of course, brilliant Jesus is not fooled by their traps flattery, its presentation, nor does he take the bait. Now notice in verse 18, Jesus exposes the prideful motives of their heart that's lurking behind the ostensible truth-seeking question. Do you see that? So before answering the question, Jesus goes, hey, give me a coin, a Roman coin. I'm paraphrasing this a little loosely. They give him a coin, and basically he says, hey, guys. And they're all guys, it seems like, what I can tell. Whose inscription is this? Ah, Emperor Caesar, of course. But Jesus responds in perhaps the most recognizable quote of Jesus in all of the English language. You all know it. Verse 21. Therefore... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. See, with both and kind of thinking, Jesus' wise words blows their either-or logical categories out of the water. Now, let's remember, you've been part of this series, you've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, you know that Matthew traffics in irony. Drip, 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 drip all the way through his text. And here it is dripping full force. Ironically, the very ones who intend to trap Jesus find themselves trapped. 
These religious leaders are completely stunned at Jesus' brilliant response. But rather than seeking to ask him more clarifying questions or embracing Jesus, what do they do? They leave him and reject him. And this is important. Matthew wants us to know this. They're not seeking the truth. They simply want the truth to go away. Isn't that true of our lives? That's as clear as the contemporary day we live in. Many of us as people reject Jesus as our Lord and Savior, not just on intellectual grounds of incoherence, but on willful grounds of an unwillingness to submit to him. Most cases, unbelief in Jesus is much more a hard issue in our lives, isn't it? Than a head issue. And perhaps this morning you are struggling with unbelief in your life. Deep doubt. You may know Jesus' answer, but the problem, if you're really transparent, if I'm really transparent, is you don't like his answer. And if you're struggling with unbelief, may I ask you, what are the heart issues that are holding you back from following him fully? So Jesus springs this God and government trap set for him with a powerful truth that sets us all free. And that is, there is a higher allegiance than human government. The scriptures tell us God's authority is the highest authority. It demands our highest allegiance. But Jesus also reminds us in this text that human government authority demands our allegiance too. As Christians, we believe in the goodness and legitimacy of the institution of human government, even though human government fails greatly and often is self-indulgent, unwise, unjust, heavy-handed, and yes, oppressive. Now, I think this has incredible relevance to our moment in American history. Having just experienced perhaps what many people say is the most polarizing and emotionally charged presidential election in our history. Jesus' teaching here is very relevant. From our modern context, the Roman government Jesus is giving legitimacy to was horrible. And he is not affirming their horribleness. It was self-serving when you read Tacitus, when you read Roman history. It was indulgent. It was unjust. It was racist. It was discriminatory. It was heavy-handed. It was oppressive. It was terrible. Yet Jesus affirms not the evil, but the legitimate authority and calls for followers of Jesus for a respectful submission to the government. Why? When we understand the current context of first century Judaism, we know that parts of Judaism were the zealots. They had a political agenda to overthrow Rome. But Jesus wants no part of that. He is not a political revolutionary. This is an important reminder for his church. Jesus did not explicitly or implicitly ferment opposition to or plot the overthrow of the Roman government. Paul, the apostle Paul and Peter echoed Jesus' teaching. Paul frames human government as under the authority of God and notice twice a servant of God's will in the world. None of them look at government as all good and dismiss evil. But notice in Romans 13, 1-2, we read, listen carefully, let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The apostle Peter, now think about this. Tacitus tells us this, other Roman historians. Peter writes to the first century church under Nero, 
And if you know Roman history, you know Nero was undoubtedly one of the worst despots imaginable. And Peter pens these words. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put the silence, the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Notice what Peter says. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. See, both Paul and Peter strongly echoed Jesus' words. Now, let's talk about this. Listen carefully. While Christians embrace the legitimacy of human government and are called to respectfully and give respect to their government leaders and be good citizens, Christians also understand there are certain times when human government's coercive edicts and powers directly violate the authority of God and call for civil disobedience. Christians throughout history have and do understand when and how to draw this line of civil disobedience in the sand in different ways. Let's look at the Old Testament, for example. In the Old Testament, both Daniel and Esther draw the line of civil disobedience. Right? Daniel does it when they are being coerced and forced into idolatry. And Esther does it in the context of imminent holocaust and the destruction of human life. There are times when human government promotes injustice or steps outside its rightful bounds of authority. And in these cases, how Christians respond requires wisdom, humility, and courage. Martyr German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my personal heroes, drew the line in the sand of his Christian conscience and opposed Nazi leader Adolf Hitler. Under a democratic form of government, like we have presently in the United States, seeking to change laws through political activism and engaging in peaceful protests are a correct and proper means to express dissent. And on this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend, we are rightly reminded of the injustice and evil of racism. And those courageous brothers and sisters like Dr. King who bravely confronted government-sanctioned evil. As followers of Jesus and as citizens of our country, all of us must be challenged of how far we still have to go for a more just society of honor and equal opportunity for our African-American brothers and sisters. What does Jesus' teaching on rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's look like for us? A few years ago, we did an extensive discussion of God and government in an expanded series. And if you want to hear all that, I encourage you to go to our archives and our website. But let me highlight a few key principles that are important for us as Christians. First, I believe rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's means respecting and praying for our local, state, and national leaders, whether we like them or not or agree with them or not. This means speaking of our leaders with respect and civility as followers of Jesus. It doesn't mean agreeing with them on their policies necessarily. Second, I believe it means paying our taxes in full, 
with a cheerful attitude, hopefully. That's a tough one for me, just being transparent. Third, I believe it means utilizing the present opportunities we have as individuals to vote as individuals and be change agents through our individual, individual political involvement. Some here may be called to seek political office or specific government roles, and we should honor that and pray for them. Fourth, I believe it means living winsomely, generously, and wisely in an increasingly pluralistic society where we have many deep fundamental differences and fostering civility in the public square and working diligently, tirelessly for a more just society and seeking the common good of all. Fifth, it means being appropriately patriotic without making our nation an idol. Being politically active as God specifically leads you as an individual without making political ideology or political parties an idol. Jesus avoided the government God trap and he gave us truth to set us free. Jesus also faced the love and marriage trap. Let's highlight that briefly. The gospel writer Matthew tells us in verse 23, the very same day Jesus is confronted by another group of religious leaders. What a day. (laughs) They got a big question. The Sadducees were in bed with Rome. They were concerned about their political power. They enjoyed political power with Rome, and they were fiercely hell-bent on keeping it. The Sadducees were opposed to Jesus more on political opportunistic motives than anything else. And they perceived Jesus as a growing threat to them. So in verses 23 through 28, they set a big trap. They bait their trap, not so much with a logical dilemma, if you look at the text carefully, but with a theological dilemma. I call this a theological Rubik's Cube. And when you hear it read, isn't it weird? I mean, it's just crazy, this hypothetical situation. I feel sorry for the woman. You mentioned married to seven brothers? Gosh, that's another thing. But they craft this extreme idea, this hypothetical case about marriage, about what the Torah teaches. Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, which they believe was authoritative only. That did not, in their view, teach resurrection after life. So the idea in Leverett marriage in the Old Testament is if a, a husband died with no children, he has a, has a wife. If he has brothers, those brothers marry the wife. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? But that was the culture. It was more of an economic arrangement than anything. So the idea is they think they have Jesus in a corner. First of all, they don't believe in the resurrection. They think, look how logically incoherent this is. So they basically say, if I may, you know, what happens in the afterlife? <laughs> Poor woman. How's she going to be married to seven guys? So basically they say, here's my paraphrase. It's loose. Jesus, if you believe in this crazy idea of the resurrection, what the Torah does not teach. Which of the brothers are going to be married to her? Oh, come on. Sadducee's question is designed to show Jesus doesn't know what the Torah teaches. You got that? As well as how bodily resurrection is fundamentally, logically, and intellectually incoherent. They think they have him. So how does Jesus respond to this theologically tangled Rubik's Cube? Look at me at verse 29 and 30. Jesus answered them and says, you are wrong. <laughs> because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Let me just throw, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. So he just zaps them right there. 
I got kind of a na 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 moment. So Jesus responds, which again, if you've studied the New Testament, you notice that most of the time Jesus responds to a question with a question. Here he doesn't. He responds with a no-holds-barred damning indictment to them. One of the strongest statements Jesus ever gives to anybody. These religious leaders claim to know the scriptures and the power of God, and Jesus says, you don't know either. You're clueless. And Jesus points back to the text. The heart of the text of the Torah is Exodus 3. God's self-revelation that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of living. It says right there. Abraham and Jacob and Isaac are already, quote, dead. They are living. Jesus says right there in God's revelation, he clearly teaches resurrection, bodily resurrection of people after life. He just zaps them. Jesus brilliantly springs the love and marriage trap with a transforming truth. And he gives us this truth that there is a love better than marriage. I don't know how that sounds to you this morning. Jesus unveils a glimpse of the future life after our death as followers of Jesus. He affirms the goodness of marriage all the way through the Bible. Jesus says, while marriage is until death do us part, after death it parts. That's what he says. Marriage is not part of the life in the new heavens and earth. He couldn't be clearer. Wow. How does that sound to you? If you're younger, maybe you're thinking marriage is the ultimate, right? If you're single and want to be married, mm-hmm. have you been married before? Maybe you're in a difficult marriage. Wherever you are, how does that sound to you? Is that good news? <laughs> I don't put it with him afterwards or her. Or is it bad news? Like the God in government trap, isn't it true we can find ourselves in the love and marriage trap? Isn't it true? It's all too easy, whether we are married or want to be married or have been married, to look at marriage as the path to ultimate bliss, happiness, and human flourishing. See, our tendency is to devalue marriage on one side, if we're cynical and worn out with it, or to overvalue marriage to trash marriage, or to idolize it. What we need is a hopeful realism about it. Leighton Ford, in his wonderful book, The Attentive Life, which I've commended to you before, writes this so brilliantly. He says, the first task in any love, whether in a marriage or in a deep friendship, is for the two persons, look at the word, to console each other for the limits of their love, for the fact that they cannot not disappoint As difficult or as wonderful as your marriage or marital partner may be, Jesus says very clearly they were never designed to meet the deepest longings of your heart. Only Jesus can do that. So regardless of your marital status, Jesus is reminding each one of you and me that even the best marriage in a fallen world is only a foretaste of what is to come. So keeping that in mind, if you are married or desire to be married someday, how do you nurture a good marriage in this life? What makes a good marriage? I was at a <clears throat> conference retreat this past week where some of the leading theologians of the country gathered on particular issues, and I'm on the leadership team of that, and we invited the leading marriage researcher in America, in my opinion, to come and speak on marriage in our culture. Dr. Brad Wilcox is, and his team at the University of Virginia, I think, are the leading 
empirical researcher, uh, researchers on marriage. They've done a lot of work, and his new book, Soulmates, addresses marriage in Latino and African-American communities as well as white communities. It was a fabulous lecture. And uh, let me give you just a little bit. His book, Soulmates, uh, gives a lot of details on this. It just came out from Oxford Press. What is amazing in the empirical research on marriage is the importance of religious faith. While there are many factors to a deepening marriage and a fulfilling marriage, like wise financial management, interpersonal communication skills, all those matter. Do you know what they're finding? Objective research of what matters most. Dr. Brad Wilcox points to two empirically verified factors that stand way out. Do you know what they are? What do you think they are? What are two of the most important factors across all ethnicities, classes of marriages that are fulfilling, growing, and deepening? Number one, regularly attending together worship at church. Secondly, regularly praying together as a couple. Dr. Wilcox made the point that if these two factors are in place, marriage satisfaction and family health rise and divorce rates plummet. So if you're here this morning and married, can I encourage you this year to do these two things? To regularly attend worship services, to pray together. Both will foster your intimacy with Christ and allow you to face the greatest storms and love each other deeply through the tough times. For some of you here today, your marriage may be in a very difficult place. I know that. I know in a crowd our size, there's a lot of marriages hurting. And I'm going to encourage you to seek professional help. We have marvelous marriage counselors and professionals across our city. As a pastoral staff, we would love to pray with you and connect you to one of those professionals. May I encourage you to invest in your marriage if you're married and prioritize it. See, Jesus' brilliance shines as he avoids the God and government trap. You see that? And the love and marriage trap set for him. And Jesus reminds us in this text, there is a higher allegiance to government, there is a love better than marriage, and he reminds us more than anything else with the statement about Torah, we must remember that Jesus, in Jesus we have a Savior that is stronger than death. On the cross, Jesus shed his innocent blood as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. After three days, Jesus bodily rose from the dead, and he offers you and me forgiveness and new creation life when we place our trust in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And we look forward to that day yet future in the new heavens and earth when we will have new bodies, a new reality where there'll be no more sin, tears, or death. As a pastor, I'm asked lots of questions, no doubt. Some of them are sincere, some of them are not so sincere. Yet every question that is asked to me reveals the condition of the human heart. The question I love being asked more than anything else, you know what it is? It's, Pastor, what matters most in life? The most important thing that matters in life is not the matter of God and government or politics, not the matter of love and marriage and sex, but the matter of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you embraced Jesus? Will you follow him and become his apprentice? Your sincere questions will inevitably lead to answers 
that will confront you and me with the decision. Will you trust and follow Jesus or not? The questions we ask reveal not only the deepest curiosities of our minds, but also the deepest conditions of our hearts. So friends, what are your questions telling you about you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a God who listens to our questions, a God who understands our doubts and understands our frailties. May we, each one of us, take a closer look at the questions we are asking you and what our heart reveals. And may we embrace the answers you give us so that we might follow and glorify you. In Jesus' name.